Welcome to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Boren. From cryptozoology, ufology, and the paranormal, to legends, forbidden history, and more, listen in and explore the world of the weird and unexplained. Join me as I look into strange and fascinating tales and unearth the truths and theories behind some of the world's greatest mysteries. Be sure to head on over to our HQ, strangeology.com, where you can check out our blog, episodes archive, gift shop, sign up to our email list, and so much more. For daily updates, trivia, shenanigans, and the occasional giveaway, follow us on social media over Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And now, on to this week's episode. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Strangeology Podcast. Thank you everyone who tuned in and downloaded my two-parter on the John Teeter saga. That was a, a wild couple of weeks of research and putting it all together in a cohesive way took took a little bit of time. <laughs> so I was a little worn out from, from those two, but uh, I received some really nice feedback from some of you about it. Uh, so thank you all again. Uh, that was a lot of fun and, uh, I guess I must be doing something right. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, uh, what have I been up to? Uh, I've been staying busy. Uh, feels like the last two weeks were, were just a blur. Um, had some, some home projects going on, uh, some, some new appliances and other appliances in the house that are broken that need to be fixed. So <laughs> it's like, you know, the never ending thing, but, uh, in other news, Strangeology just turned one year old uh, as of when I'm recording this. Uh, it's uh, Saturday, April 3rd. Uh, but, you know, by the time this comes out, it'll be a couple days after that. So uh, it's it's been a wild ride so far and, uh, you know, made made a lot of cool new friends and contacts along the way, learning new stuff all the time. And, and Strangeology has grown from... Uh, just a, a a meme page on Instagram, essentially, to <laughs> uh, providing content and insight into this whole weird weird world we live in. Uh, and uh, you know, we've got the the podcast now, obviously, and a YouTube channel, and a website, and a merch store. So it's turned into this this whole thing that keeps chugging along growing and doing new things. And, uh, I'm, I'm super stoked for what the future brings. And, and, uh, I re I really couldn't do it without, uh, all your support, uh, people who, who follow me, uh, on social media and, uh, all y'all who are listening in, um, every couple of weeks that I, I put a new episode out here. Um, but anyway, uh, we've had a, a string of really nice days last week uh, for this past week, uh, in New England. And, uh, it turned out to be, you know, fake spring because then it, <laughs> it starts snowing again, but I think we're, we're out of it now. Um, but you know, uh, get to spend a lot of time outside in the past week and in, enjoying the weather and figuring out some, uh, from details for, uh, some, some new stuff to do. Um, and I've been, you know, keeping busy with all that and, and trying to plan out a couple of, on the road things to do with strangeology this summer and fall, you know, maybe the going out for some, some weekend warrior stuff to check out some things on the ground. Um, 
I actually submitted uh, an application to become a vendor for CryptidCon uh, in Kentucky uh, this November, which is exciting and also a little scary because I've never really done anything like that before. But uh, fingers crossed that I get accepted uh, for being a vendor. And uh, I've, you know, I've heard great things <laughs> from people I know. Um, so I am also hoping to get out to Mothman Fest in West Virginia uh, as well. Uh, you know, if everything, you know, goes according to plan and, and things are able to happen later this year. So, you know, we'll see how that all pans out. And, uh, you know, I, I thought about putting in a little news news segment uh, in this episode, but I feel like, I feel like the, the cryptid news and, and, uh, other, other weird Fortean news has been a little slow over the past week. Uh, you know, we, we had that, uh, God, I guess it was like a month ago now that the, uh, the supposed thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger, uh, Joey that was caught on, uh, trail cam and then the photo was released, but it turned out that it was uh patamelon, uh, you know, like a similar marsupial to like the wallaby and the kangaroo, but sh- smaller. <laughs> uh, so I'm just gonna skip, skip on any news this week and get into, t- uh, to today's topic, uh, which kind of turned into another behemoth of a story. So, <laughs> Uh, here we go. This is the Bridgewater Triangle. So I've been meaning to circle back to do another uh, installment of my Oddities of New England uh, series, which I talked about when I first started doing the podcast, uh, and then what was that episode two, I think. Um, and I figured it was time to kind of circle back and return to the roost, so to speak, uh, because there's, there's so many different things to talk about in new England and there's so much history here. And I initially thought that I'd do something similar to my previous, uh, episode about weird stuff (laughs) in my homeland. Uh, but you know, you know, touch on a couple of things, but I was looking into, you know, the legends of the Bridgewater Triangle. And uh, when I picked that out and started going over all the lore, it became clear that real fast that uh, this would take up at least an episode and possibly more by itself. So, you know, you guessed it. We're talking about the Bridgewater Triangle today. So, uh, what is the Bridgewater Triangle? So I want to get some basics down first. The Bridgewater Triangle is an unofficially uh, defined area of 200 square miles located in the southeastern corner of Massachusetts. It's uh, just north of New Bedford and Fall River, you know, not too far from Providence, Rhode Island, not too far from Boston. And according to local legends and witness reports for quite literally centuries, this area has become known as a place of a lot of high strangeness. Like there's there's a lot of weird stuff that happens in this area. And it's funny, I 
you know, I grew up in, in Vermont <laughs> and like my whole family's from New England, but I feel like I, I've, I've heard of the Bridgewater Triangle, but I never really knew a lot of the specifics. So I, I was pretty excited to get into, into, uh, the whole story about this area. That's, it's, it's going to get wild guys. <laughs> you know, it's like, if you ask people in that area, you're, probably bound to hear stories of strange and unexplainable happenings that have gone on there. For years, people have reported seeing paranormal phenomena, poltergeist activity, such as the uh, ghostly apparition of this like redheaded hitchhiker on Route 44 that if there's, you know, someone kind enough to actually pull over and give this dude a ride, He'll like come up to the car and then just disappear. <laughs> and then there's been like vanishings of people and murders, um, cult-like activity, uh, animal mutilations. There's been sightings of black helicopters and UFOs seen frequently in this area, as well as uh, things like uh, light orbs, balls of fire, disembodied voices, uh, and then you also have sightings of cryptids like uh, Bigfoot type creatures, uh, puckwudgies, hellhounds, giant snakes, and even thunderbirds. This area, it's like a, a one-stop shop for all things weird. And there's this this uh, author um, and folklorist, Chris Balzano, and he was once quoted as saying, uh, anything that you want to be in the triangle is in the triangle, uh, obviously referring to the Bridgewater Triangle. It wasn't until the 1970s that cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, as uh, I'm sure most of you know, <laughs> he started connecting the dots while he was looking in into all these reports of high strangeness uh, and weird happenings that clustered around this like nebulous zone in Massachusetts. And he wound up kind of mapping out all the reports and they all kind of seemed to coalesce between these three points. And he coined the term, the Bridgewater triangle um, after Bridgewater, Massachusetts. And so that's what this zone has become known as um, at least unofficially. And these three points on the map that kind of define the boundaries are the towns of Abington, which is the Northern point Rehoboth, Mass, which is the southwest kind of point, and then Freetown on the southeast. And right in the middle, the city of Taunton um, is kind of at the center of all the action. So now that that's all established, let's start looking into what makes this place so interesting. One of the main hotspots for high strangeness within the Bridgewater Triangle is a place called the Freetown Forest. This forest is, uh, it's over 5,000 acres that stretches between Fall River and Freetown. And it's home to about 50 miles of unpaved roads and uh, hiking trails and uh, snowmobile trails and stuff like that. You know, it's frequented by hikers and cyclists in the summer months and in the wintertime you've got cross-country skiers and uh, snowmobilers riding these trails uh, and it's also a popular 
spot for hunting and fishing because there's you know a lot of uh, a lot of water around the area. It's right the Taunton River runs right through it, which also uh, empties out right into the Atlantic Ocean. So you know there's <laughs> a lot of that going on. But while this this forest may seem picturesque, it actually holds a really dark history. I mean, so does the whole area. Uh, for starters, this forest is said by some to be the home of uh, a diminutive humanoid uh, race of beings known as Pukwudgies, like I mentioned earlier. And Pukwudgies are uh, long known by the Wampanoag people. Uh, and I'll probably do an episode on them another time going into some more detail because there's a lot to go over today. Uh, but in case you don't know what they are, uh, a quick overview would be they're essentially these tiny humanoid beings. They were uh, once friendly with the native tribes of Massachusetts for, you know, ages past. And the native peoples got a lot of help from the Pukwudgies, but then mankind kind of started worshiping and doing all their stuff for their uh, their main deity. And the Pukwudgies got jealous and turned against them. And then they started causing mischief and mayhem and killing people. And there's this like whole battle. And uh, so it's believed by some that uh, this is kind of a, a ground zero for Pukwudgie activity. Uh, so it would be kind of interesting to do a little stake out there at some point in time and, and, and see if there's, there's anything going on. And, uh, it's it, the Freetown forest is also believed by some to, uh, be a haunted forest, which we'll get into why that could possibly and most likely be pretty shortly. And for some strange reason, the forest seems to be this like magnet for like grisly murders and people going missing and, human sacrifice. And yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> this is going to get intense. So Freetown forest is, uh, is home to, there's a few things in there. It's the first thing I'm going to go over is that it's home to this 80 foot deep rock quarry called Assinet ledge. Um, and it's filled with water. So you know, if you wanted to, you might be able to go swimming in there, but I don't know if I'd recommend that, but this this ledge, uh, which it's also alternately called just the ledge instead of Assinet Ledge, it's associated with all manner of bizarre phenomena. Uh, the quarry seems to, for some reason, there's like this inordinate amount of abandoned cars in the area. People just like park their cars out in the woods around the quarry and just ditch them. <laughs> and there's also, you know, unfortunately, there's been a lot of suicides that happen around the area as well. Uh, whether or not there's, you know, some kind of strange connection or energy in the area, uh, I'm unclear, but it is uh, something that's been reported to have happened um, frequently. Uh, people who venture into the quarry, some have reported becoming overcome uh, with this inescapable sense of dread and doom. And some visitors to the quarry also report ghostly poltergeist activity. For example, people will see uh, apparitions of something, uh, you know, humanoid figured 
standing on the uh, the quarry ledge, which goes down into the water pool below, either standing there or just jumping off. And then whatever this thing is, it just disappears before hitting the water. You'd think you'd, there'd be a splash, but nope. <laughs> it uh, just vanishes, dematerializes. Uh, and if that wasn't weird enough, you know, there's also rumors that strange cult activity takes place there. And another thing about the ledge, uh, perhaps the most well-known thing about it is that it's apparently the site or at least the vicinity of the area where Ronald Reagan had an alleged UFO sighting in 1974. And, uh, the story behind that is he was uh, riding around in a Cessna plane with two uh, security personnel, and there was a pilot in the plane, so four people, and they're flying by the the ledge area over, over the Freetown Forest, and they had spotted a light that was tailing the plane, and this light was seen to accelerate, and then de- decelerate, and apparently it also changed shape and became elongated. Uh, and then this this only happened over a couple minutes, and once that was done, it suddenly shot up at like a 45-degree angle uh, up into the outer atmosphere in the blink of an eye, and then it was gone. So... As far as what else this forest has going on for it, because it's already pretty heavy so far, uh, it's seen its fair share of murders. The most famous case took place back in 1978. And this is going to get a little gruesome, guys. So if you want to skip ahead a little bit, uh, feel free. But, uh, you know, spoiler spoiler warning. <laughs> uh, so in 1978, uh, there was this uh, girl that went missing uh, for two months. And, uh, she was only 15. She had gone out to ride her bike, uh, right near her home and she, she vanished. And then two months later, after exhaustive search efforts were done by the authorities, the body of this girl, uh, her name was Mary Lou Aruda, was found tied to a tree in the forest. And, a James M. Cater was charged and, and found guilty of murdering uh, Aruda, but it took four trials and almost 20 years uh, before a conviction stuck. Um, for various reasons, the original convictions got overturned by the state, some evidence was thrown out, and apparently there was uh, the conviction wound up being. A, for a separate incident, uh, this Cater guy, uh, apparently in 1968, he kidnapped uh, another woman from uh, Andover, Mass., and uh, that's what he wound up getting thrown in jail for, finally, because he had abducted her and assaulted her. But apparently, until the day that uh, this guy died, which was in... Uh, 2016, he died in prison. He apparently maintained that he was innocent of uh, the murder of Mary Lou Aruda. Um, there's a lot more details in there, uh, and I had actually written out a whole 
segment about it, but then I was like, uh, there's a lot more stuff going on here. <laughs> and, uh, it was, it was a pretty tough, tough story to read through. So, uh, you know, if I do a, uh, uh, any series on, on true crime, maybe I'll, I'll cover that one in a little more detail. Uh, sidebar, I, I have been watching, uh, making a murderer for the first time and true crime's not really like a big thing <laughs> for me at least, but you know, could be something to, uh, talk about in the future there. But, uh, you know, interestingly, some believe that the murder could have been, connected to, um, a satanic cult killing. And this time period, you know, the late seventies, early eighties was kind of the, the beginning of the satanic panic wave that happened back then. So, I mean, I can see why maybe some people could have made that connection and particularly because between 1979 and 1980, um, in this area, of the Bridgewater Triangle, there were a series of murders of young women, uh, three women who were ritually killed um, that took place in the area, which this whole thing's called the Fall River Cult Killings. And in addition to this, you know, there were people and animals that were appearing in this time to be ritually sacrificed. And uh, the series of of killings seem to be conne uh, connected to this prostitution ring that had this alleged connection to a satanic cult that happened uh, in the forest near this place called the Ice Shack. And uh, this Ice Shack apparently had previous connections to cult activities and, and drug trafficking and murders dating like all the way back to like the 40s. And around this time, uh, police also reportedly found the, so this underground bunker that showed evidence of strange cult-like rituals and possibly human sacrifice as well. And there was even a report of a bog worker uh, complaining about trespassers dressed in black robes that converged on his shack. And apparently when the site was investigated by authorities... Apparently, there was this large pentagram made of these meticulously placed stones that was found outside the shack, uh, and the authorities removed the stones, and curiously, the next day or the day after, uh, somebody had taken a bunch of new stones and put them in the exact same spot to form a new pentagram. So <laughs> that's kind of weird. Uh, and among other uh, murders in or near this forest, um, there was also uh, there was a homeless man that was accidentally killed in 1987. And in 2001, there were two men hiking down a road in the forest and they were shot to death by an unknown assailant. And there's been several others, but... Uh, you know, that's probably enough, enough killing for that segment there. But yeah, so Freetown Forest is, you know, it seems like it's a nice place, but there's a lot of messed up stuff that has happened there over the years. And I'm not sure if I'd really want to step foot in there, but yeah, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure there's, you know, plenty, plenty of reasons to go in, but plenty of reasons to not. <laughs> So what else is there 
in this strange place that's become known as the Bridgewater Triangle. Well, smack dab in the middle of the Bridgewater Triangle and uh, part of the Freetown Forest, actually, uh, lies Massachusetts' uh, largest freshwater swampland. And it's a place that has many areas that have been largely undisturbed by human activity for the past 500 years. Uh, and this area is just 40 minutes from Boston. So it's a quick, quick hop and a skip away from civilization, right? And this place is, it's a place riddled with quicksand, murky water, you know, bugs and snakes and all that kind of thing. (laughs) But it holds the stories and secrets of a a really dark and brutal history, Uh, much like the, the Freetown forest that it's in, right? Uh, so this 6,000-acre bog is called the Hockamock Swamp. And this is uh, it's an area that's said to be cursed by uh, the Native American tribes who once lived in the area. And it's said that people who enter this swamp have reported feeling like they're being watched by some unseen force uh, and begin to feel very unsettled, like vengeful spirits are, are keeping an eternal watch over the swamp. And one of the theories about this is some think there could be some kind of like magnetic anomaly within there that could potentially interfere with uh, the brain uh, to cause people to feel unsettled and nervous. You know, there's been studies and stuff where people are, are affected by electromagnetism and it causes them to feel off. <laughs> um, or, you know, that the, the Hockamock Swamp and even the, the Bridgewater Triangle as a whole uh, is this window area to the unexplained. And this is, you know, also this kind of thing is described as uh, like a vortex um, where paranormal activity and high strangeness has uh, an easier time manifesting in our world. So the, the name Hockamock is actually, it's Algonquin for, uh, it roughly translates to uh, the place where spirits dwell. And for the, the Wampanoag people who populated this area hundreds of years ago, uh, the swamp was seen as both a sacred and an evil place. And when English settlers began arriving in America, uh, they began to fear this place and they actually call it the or called it at the time uh, the Devil's Swamp. And for centuries, the Wampanoag relied on the Hockamock Swamp as a hunting ground, but it also functioned as a sacred burial ground for them as well. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, sacred native burial grounds in this area, uh, and the uh, the Wampanoag people sometimes also referred to this place. Um, as Habamak, not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, it's that was the name of their uh, their deity of death and disease. So there's another connection for uh, why the swamp is viewed as a, a sacred but also uh, evil place as well. The swamp served as a natural fortress for the Wampanoag in the 17th century. And it actually played a a pivotal role during King Philip's War as a strategic base 
to launch attacks against settlers. This war was actually named after uh, Metacomet, who was the Wampanoag chief then, and he had actually adopted the name Philip due to his father's peaceful relations and alliance with uh, the people who came from the Mayflower uh, in the earlier part of the 1600s. And Metacomet forsook his father's alliance after uh, colonists betrayed and violated uh, treaties with his people. Uh, And in 1675, war broke out between uh, several of the the Native American tribes uh, and the English settlers. And there were were some enemy tribes from the Wampanoag uh, that actually sided with the English, um, though, but, and, and things got pretty bad. The, the war lasted three years and it almost entirely wiped out the Wampanoag tribe as well as the Narragansett uh, tribe. And, and, you know, at this point, it was one of the bloodiest conflicts in, in North American history. And maybe even till this day, it's, it's, it's up there. Beyond millennia old burial sites within this swamp, uh, human conflict and, and suffering massive death, you know, it could certainly set a precedent for future high strangeness and paranormal activity, right? Uh, And according to Native American legend, um, there was also this sacred wampum belt, uh, which was lost during the war. And there's some belief there that could be a cause for some of the the paranormal activity that's reported within the swamp. So uh, by the, the 18th and 19th century, uh, people who had settled the area thought this swamp was this worthless area. <laughs> and apparently they tried to, to drain it so they could turn it into profitable arable land for farming. Uh, but ultimately they failed doing, doing so. Um, and I'm not sure if there's some implication that, you know, there was something about the land that, that, uh, kept people from doing that. Um, I tried looking a little into that, but didn't find too much, but (laughs) I love a good history lesson. And you're probably wondering where's all the the weirdness, uh, here. Now, when, when is that coming into play? Well, here's the start of it. So in Lauren Coleman's book, Mysterious America, uh, which he wrote at length about the Bridgewater Triangle, he talks about this eight to 9,000 year old burial ground that was discovered within the Hockamock on this place called Grassy Island. And there, there's been many important archeological findings in this area that have dated to this time period, like uh, hearths and post molds, red paint ceremonial deposits, and even a rectangular lodge floor, but nothing out of the ordinary really thing with these uh, discoveries. Uh, But according to Coleman's story, uh, when the tombs on Grassy Island were opened up, there was red ochre uh, within them, and supposedly the red ochre bubbled up and dissolved into thin air. And apparently there isn't a known reason why this would happen. Uh, I tried looking into it and seeing if there was any kind of like chemical reaction um, like when iron oxide, which is in red ochre, 
meets the air after a long time if it like dissolves, but I I couldn't find too much. I'm not a chemist. So if any of you are chemists out there and have some ideas, shoot them to me. I'd, I'd love to, uh, to read them to see, you know, what could be the reason why that would happen. And also in Coleman's book, he had mentioned that uh, any photographs that were taken of this site did not come out and, or they wouldn't develop properly while the negatives were, were being processed, uh, which is curious because uh, camera malfunctions seem pretty commonplace with uh, paranormal activity and this kind of thing. And, you know, these would have been at the time, you know, old school analog manual SLR cameras with a film crank and probably not needing batteries where, you know, you think of when you're watching like uh, ghost channels on YouTube or, or on TV and stuff like that. And the camera dies. It's like, Oh, the battery died all of a sudden for no reason. (laughs) I know these old cameras likely didn't have them. So that's kind of interesting to note that, you know, pictures were taken, but the (laughs) nothing came out. (laughs) Uh, so let's, let's keep on moving here. Uh, among other interesting finds, in the Bridgewater Triangle, there's uh, this thing called the Dighton Rock, uh, which can be found right across the Taunton River from the grassy island of the swamp. And this is a 40-ton boulder that's covered in petroglyphs, and it's believed to be the oldest carved rock uh, in America that's ever been found. And the glyphs that are on it come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, there's lines, geometric shapes, drawings of people, and there's even glyphs on it that uh, some researchers believe are a, uh, a written language or some form of it. And the origin of the boulders glyphs have been studied for centuries, but still to this day, no one really knows, you know, who did them. So the, the first uh, records of this rock come from a, a guy named Dr. John Danforth, uh, who meticulously sketched and studied this rock like way back in, uh, 1680, a long time ago, uh, right after its discovery, uh, it was actually found on the riverbed of the Taunton river. And Danforth believed that native Americans had carved it, uh, to depict some great battle. But others believe the carvings are hieroglyphic in nature, uh, with some actually going as far to claim that it appears to be similar to cuneiform from ancient Samaria. Uh, Though looking at pictures of the carvings on it, it doesn't really appear similar to that at all, at least in my opinion. But uh, many have attempted to decipher the stone, but you know, to this day, it, it continues to hold its secrets. And so as far as uh, theories of who carved this chunk of rock, it's anyone's best guess, but here, let's look at a few. Um, so the primary theory, like Danforth's, is that uh, ancient Native Americans are the ones who did it. Interestingly, the glyphs that are on Dighton Rock do appear similar to petroglyphs that can be found in Eastern Vermont. So it does seem like there's a a pretty solid theory behind that. And maybe it's the most likely, 
but <laughs> some some have theorized that uh, bored English settlers <laughs> carved the rock who uh, loved making puzzles and, and riddles for future <laughs> generations to decipher, and maybe they were the ones responsible. I mean, that's kind of a silly one, right? <laughs> In uh, 1767, there was this guy, Ezra Stiles, and he was the uh, then president of Yale College. And he had this hypothesis that the ancient Phoenicians sailed all the way across the Atlantic Ocean and made it to uh, North America, uh, particularly like the Boston Harbor area. And they went inland a little bit and carved a rock to say, hey, we <laughs> we Phoenicians were here in ancient times and then went on their merry way. Um, but uh, most people, I think, kind of don't really buy that hypothesis for some reason. But uh, there's this other idea um, that was proposed in 1837 that Leif Erikson and his Vikings may have made it to Massachusetts Bay on their voyage to North America around 1000 AD. And uh, this idea at the time was rejected, but we do know now for a fact that Leif Erikson and his, his Viking sailors actually did make it to North America up in Newfoundland. So there is, you know, there's potentially a small chance that there was a scouting party or something that traveled a little further south uh, from where they, they ended up. But, you know, it's anyone's guess, really. There's also an idea that it was carved by the Portuguese, uh, specifically from the explorer Miguel uh, Cortreal, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> and it appears that, you know, some of the characters on the rock are in an abbreviated form of Latin. Um, so some people were like, Oh, maybe that's what it is. But, uh, the theory was actually thoroughly debunked. So that's no longer on the table, I guess. <laughs> Further theories suggested that, uh, Armenians apparently crossed the Bering Strait at some point in the past and journeyed all the way to the other side of North America uh, to leave their mark. And there's even ideas that um, the Chinese or the Japanese could have uh, made, made the journey uh, to North America uh, from the Pacific Ocean and could have been responsible. And then, of course, it simply could have been hoaxed, you know, or maybe there's some combination of everything. Like it was this marker that different people's over uh, different periods of time stopped at this landmark rock and kept adding, adding their signatures to, uh, which is, that's kind of an interesting thought, but uh, still no one really knows exactly who carved it <laughs> after all this time. Uh, but today you can, you can go down to Massachusetts and, and see Dighton rock, uh, which it was moved out of the river and it's now, uh, preserved in a museum uh, within the Dighton Rock State Park. So that's uh, a cool thing that I might try to go see at some point. <laughs> uh, maybe this summer? We'll see. Anyway, uh, so let's get into some 
of the more high strangeness and creepy creatures part of the Bridgewater Triangle uh, because there's some interesting stuff in here and I, I think I've, I've made you all wait long enough for this segment at the end. <laughs> uh, so one interesting and weird event to note is something that was called the Yellow Days. And in colonial times, uh, the skies around the Triangle's area were usually pretty clear Uh, But occasionally it was reported that the sky would glow in this like mysterious yellow hue. And Lauren Coleman was quoted as saying that it seemed like the sky and everything around it was filled with pollen. And allegedly there's, there's no explanation for the yellow days. Maybe there was a volcanic eruptions around somewhere at the time. Like I know when, uh, Krakatoa exploded back in in the 19th century. I, I feel like I've heard or read that you know, the sky changed color in s- certain parts of the world. So that could be an explanation. Uh, but at the same time, pollen could also be a likely explanation, especially if uh, the yellow days were observed between like May and June. Because I know it. In New England, that time of year, like you'll wake up in the morning and like your car and your driveway is just like covered in this like chartreuse pollen that's everywhere and it's nasty. (laughs) Um, And then we have reports of UFOs. And one of the cool things about this, and it's, it's not something I, I had heard of, you know, in, in all the years that I've been reading about UFOs and watching shows is that the very first written record of a UFO in North America took place. Uh, and you know, maybe even the world, uh, it took place in the Bridgewater triangle apparently. And this report comes from 1760. And it said that this quote sphere of fire brighter than the sun was spotted in the sky over uh, Southeast Massachusetts. And this light was apparently so bright uh, that it cast its own shadows against the morning sun shadows. You know, like when you're, you're inside a room uh, and there's more than one source of light and you get multiple shadows that are crisscrossing on the floor, uh, something like that. And, this UFO was reported from Bridgewater uh, to Roxbury, Mass. And it doesn't seem like there was, you know, any explanation that's ever been offered for the event. So that's really interesting to me. Um, And there's also uh, a lot of uh, reports of a similar phenomenon uh, of spook lights in the Bridgewater Triangle. And for years, uh, people have spotted strange glowing orbs of light that can't be explained. Uh, And this thing isn't an exclusive phenomenon to the area. There's other places in the world that have similar things happen, like the Brown Mountain Lights of North Carolina, for example, uh, or the Marfan Lights in Texas, uh, things like St. Elmo's Fire, or even legends of the will-o'-wisp and these incandescent spheres of light are really elusive to humans. Like they'll just kind of come out of nowhere and like disappear as fast as they came. And like people will report them to like uh, 
they travel along railroad tracks, like at high rates of speed, or they'll zip along, uh, or, or bounce around down, uh, city streets and spook lights can be, uh, shift color too. Uh, apparently (laughs) they can be seen in like red and blue and orange and all over the course of like the few seconds you're sighting one of these things, it can change that rapidly while people are witnessing them before they suddenly vanish or zip off super fast and you just can't see them anymore. (laughs) It's interesting if you've listened to my very first, uh, my introduction episode for the podcast, you might recall me telling a story of, uh, I actually witnessed a orb of light that was zipping through the woods around, uh, the house I grew up in one night when I was out swimming, swimming in the pool. And, uh, it kind of just came, came by real quick from one direction. And a few minutes later, it zipped back in the other direction. And I was like, uh, I'm going inside. (laughs) Uh, and I, I still to this day don't have an explanation for that. And after, you know, I've heard about spook lights and stuff before, uh, but for some reason I never really connected the two. And after, you know, reading stuff more about them, I'm kind of wondering if that was, you know, what I saw could have been uh, considered a a spook light or uh, a ghost light as they're alternatively known as. Some people think that uh, spook lights are something like ball lightning. And, you know, some very well could be. Ball lightning isn't uh, a super well understood phenomenon, but According to some legends and stories, spook lights are potentially wandering spirits of deceased individuals. And in other parts of the world, it's believed that uh, these lights will appear when there's buried treasure nearby. So that's kind of cool. Beyond that, there's also connections to be made with UFO activity and uh, certainly uh, there's plenty of that within the Bridgewater Triangle. So uh, circling back to UFOs, beyond the uh, the first one in 1760, there's been plenty, plenty more sightings around the Triangle over the years. Uh, the next couple reports I, I'm going to mention here come from the, uh, the book Weird New England by Joseph Citro. So on uh, March 23rd, 1979, there was this Boston uh, news reporter named Jerry Lopez uh, who had witnessed a UFO and it wasn't like your ordinary flying saucer. And instead he described this thing as looking like the home plate of a baseball field. So it's kind of like a a Pentagon type of shape, five sides, right? Uh, It had bright, uh, bright red lights on the top of it and then rows of white and red alternating lights around its sides. And he sighted the craft uh, right at the intersection of Route 24 and Route 106, which is coincidentally right in the center of the Bridgewater Triangle. Uh, And then in 1991, there was another witness who claimed to observe a green disc that was moving uh, really slow and completely silent like only 50 feet above the ground. And the craft had this kind of spotlight that was illuminating the ground below, like it was searching for something. And that's kind of, I feel like, 
uh, a common theme reported uh, for many UFO sightings. Maybe not many, but at least uh, a good amount of them. <laughs> and uh, to wrap up the the high strangeness aspect here, because uh, <laughs> I don't want the episode to go on too, too long. There's also reports of cryptids in the area. Uh, you know, in addition to flying things like UFOs, apparently there have been reports over the years of giant birds or pterodactyl-like creatures that are, have been seen flying around the area. These seemingly giant birds are sometimes thought to be uh, the legendary Thunderbird. And apparently <laughs> they like to hang out in the Hockamock Swamp area uh, and also nearby Taunton. So, you know, that makes sense. <laughs> if you're going to find anything you want in the Bridgewater Triangle, why not, uh, why not giant birds too? So one such witness to these birds was this uh, police officer, uh, Sergeant Thomas Downey from the Norton Police Department. And his story goes that in 1971, he was on patrol and he claimed to spot this impossibly large bird that was flying straight up into the air. And he estimated it to be like six feet tall and it had a eight to 12 foot wingspan, which is way larger than known birds of the area. And uh, in another account <clears throat> from 1988, two local boys were wandering around in the woods and they found these large three-toed tracks, you know, like bird tracks, chicken tracks. <laughs> uh, and they decided it would be a good idea to follow them until they stumbled upon the creature that was making them. <laughs> so according to the account, uh, the creature that they stumbled into, uh, it had this like black wrinkled face dark feathers, long brown legs. It was, you know, this huge, huge bird creature. And it flew off into the forest after, you know, they had their little standoff. And uh, the kids saw that whatever this thing was, it had a wingspan that was close to 12 feet. And other witnesses claim that these things look more man-like than bird-like, which is interesting. So it's like, could these, instead of being birds, could they be some kind of like flying humanoid, like a Mothman type creature or similar being? You know, it's, it's interesting that areas of high strangeness seem to frequently include stories like these, uh, of encounters of these kinds of, of entities. And it seems like there's some kind of connection to other hotspots in the world that experience similar activity. Uh, it's definitely something that uh, I plan to look into a lot more in the future, because <laughs> flying flying humanoid creatures are are super interesting. So, you know, there's got to be there's got to be something more there, I think. And beyond bird-like beasts, there's also uh, cryptids of the four-legged variety that are reported to reside in the Bridgewater Triangle. In the town of Abingdon, uh, there was a report of this giant red-eyed dog that 
showed up one day and raised hell in the community and apparently killed two ponies. Like how much of a beast of a dog do you have to be to kill ponies? Like that's crazy. Apparently it terrorized the area and evaded capture for weeks uh, until a local cop managed to uh, get a shot in on it. And you know where this is going. <laughs> like most cryptid cases where uh, someone fires a bullet at something, the bullet had no effect. And, uh, you know, whatever this creature was, dog or not, it wandered off and uh, was never seen again. So it's possible that this, this cop totally missed the creature or maybe it just wasn't enough to face it. And later on it, it keeled over and died somewhere. I'm not sure, but it's, it's funny. It reminds me a lot of uh, the story um, from Skinwalker Ranch where the previous ranch owners encountered this giant wolf-like creature one night and it was shot several times at point blank range. And this creature just kind of tanked it, shrugged it off and walked away. Like nothing happened. It's <laughs> like pretty weird stuff, right? And the last cryptid I will mention here is none other than the big guy himself, Bigfoot, <laughs> or at least a, a type of hairy biped that could be related, could not be related. Who knows? But, uh, so, uh, residents of the, the area have spotted, uh, some kind of strange, smelly, uh, hairy bipedal humanoid creature from time to time. Uh, within or near the triangle. In 1978, there was one witness uh, that was walking near the Claybanks pond when he spotted a, quote, apish and man thing lumbering towards the nearby woods. This sighting caused a massive search to find the creature, uh, but apparently no signs were ever found of it. And some believe whatever this thing or things were, they're usually, at least in this area, more docile to an extent and prefer to avoid human civilization altogether, uh, which, you know, that's usually the case. But, you know, occasionally you hear of, of uh, Bigfoot type creatures like the Mogollon monster who are super aggressive and will <laughs> just rip people's faces off. So... Also in the 1970s, there was a flap of animal mutilations uh, along with missing livestock from local farms, which were coupled with reports of uh, people witnessing a uh, seven or so foot tall uh, hairy humanoid that was stalking the area. And uh, officially a bear was blamed for causing all this destruction, uh, even though Apparently, there's no bears that were known to live in the area at the time, at least. And local police searched the nearby Hockamock Swamp for two days with attack dogs, but came up empty. So it's kind of become a popular notion that the cops were actually searching out in the swamp for a disgruntled Bigfoot who caused all this mayhem uh, for local farmers. And that is just about where I'm going to leave the story of this bizarre place known as the Bridgewater Triangle. <laughs> that was a lot of stuff. And there's definitely a lot more stories about this area. 
uh, that I couldn't fit into the episode. I kind of picked my, my favorite pieces and, and ran with them. And <laughs> here we are, we're at the top of the hour and, uh, there's so much more that could be covered, but, um, I think that, uh, there's gotta be something unexplained going on in there. Uh, even if, even if like some of these stories are, are just that, you know, urban legends and myth and stuff like there's still, there's still a rich and complex history of things that have happened there, uh, which to me at least makes it an interesting area to study. Uh, regardless, you know, I might have to put this place down, uh, on my list of places to visit like some weekend this summer, make a jaunt down there and report back and see if I see any UFOs or Bigfoots or something like that. (laughs) But then at the same time with all like the messed up, messed up shit that happens down there. I'm like, uh, do I really want to step foot in like the Freetown forest or, <laughs> or go in the Hockamock swamp? Like, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But, uh, I hope you liked the episode today. Uh, it was nice coming back to, uh, a new England focused episode and, uh, you know, I'll definitely be circling back again at some point in the future. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's the Bridgewater triangle in a nutshell, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. All right. uh, Drawing this episode to a close, everyone. Thank you again for checking it out today. I just wanted to do uh, a couple quick shout outs before I close out the episode. Uh, Thank you, as always, uh, to all my listeners. Uh, The show... I, I just checked the stats and it, it recently passed uh, 1,000 downloads, which is huge. <laughs> that's a lot of downloads. Uh, so that's awesome. Thank you uh, so much, everyone, for, for checking out the show and, and sharing it with your friends and family. It you know, helps out so much and uh, it means a lot to me. It really does. And uh, also, thanks everyone uh, who's left a, a five star review so far. I know there's <laughs> no there's no like written ones yet, um, but uh, that's uh, it's definitely definitely cool to see, and it helps out. Thank you to everyone who's been following my Instagram. My account there just blew past three thousand followers, and uh, I'm planning on doing a special new merch giveaway soon. So definitely follow me on there uh, and pay attention uh, so you'll know when the details drop and how to enter and all that good stuff. And now for some uh, friend and rad people shoutouts. There's a new podcast on the block, uh, which y'all should check out. It's called the Manic Pixie Dream Ghouls podcast uh, by my friend uh, Sarah. Uh, from the American Snallygaster Museum, and uh, Kenzie, who also hosts the uh, Crypto Chats podcast. I think their first episode is releasing this week, so definitely check it out if you're into uh, cryptids and other weird topics. Uh, All things strange. We love it here. Uh, Moth Boys are also back in action. Shout out to them. Uh, Those guys are always super rad, and if you need a good laugh... They're, they're, they're hilarious and well worth the listen, but, uh, you know, <laughs> make sure you're not like driving or doing any kind of, uh, 
activity that requires you to pay attention to because you might, you might, uh, double over laughing and, uh, it could end badly. <laughs> and, uh, if you're into cryptid art, a uh, couple shout outs to some artists, buddies, uh, definitely go check out and uh, get some prints, uh, from Easton Hawk illustration. He has been working on these amazing old B movie style, uh, posters of cryptids. He's, uh, he's currently got, uh, a Mothman one, which I have, uh, I have one that I purchased from his shop and it's in my hanging in my studio and I love it. <laughs> and, uh, he's also got a, uh, a Loveland Frogman, uh, poster and a Flatwoods monster so far in his shop. So I can't wait to see what he comes up with next. Uh, definitely, definitely check him out. Uh, and also, uh, check out, uh, Jonathan Dodds. Uh, his artwork is also really, really cool and amazing. And, uh, he's been working on this super fun series on cryptids. Uh, he's got to have at least, at least a dozen cryptids down so far. And, uh, he comes up with a lot of fun colloquial sayings and, uh, it's just super fun. So definitely, definitely check them out and, uh, support, support your local, or regional or wherever content creators and, and, and people who just love, love the cryptid community and, and everything to do in the 14 world. Uh, also, uh, if anyone ever wants to send a nice message just to say hi, uh, if you have feedback or suggestions, uh, things you think are working with this show or not, um, that kind of thing. My DMs on Instagram are always open. Uh, you can also email me at strangeologist at gmail.com. Um, especially email me too if you have uh, any of your own stories of strange and unexplained encounters with the weird. Uh, I'd love to do another listener stories episode uh, or even set up some interviews in the near future. That's something I've been <laughs> meaning to do. I wanted to get a few episodes under my belt, and uh, I think it's you know getting close time to start talking to some some folks out there. So definitely get in touch uh, if you have anything to say. And also don't forget to check out my blog over on uh, the website, strangeology.com. I'm terrible at updating it consistently. <laughs> I'll go through like random random bursts of like putting up a couple posts. Um, but I am still open. If there are, are writers out there, if, if you love writing about cryptids, UFOs, the paranormal, uh, and want to submit an article or story, just, uh, get at me, uh, email me. I've got a couple new, uh, designs over in my shop too. Um, like my, my Phoenix lights shirt design that's brand new. Uh, and people seem to be digging it quite a bit. So, <laughs> Uh, definitely get on it. Um, I think this episode's dropping Monday and I have a, a 10% off sale on my shop running until Wednesday, April 7th. So, uh, you know, if you're listening to this and want to check that out, now's the time to save a couple bucks <laughs> and it helps me out a lot. So, uh, definitely check that out. All right, folks, that's the show. Uh, my voice is, is getting shredded and, uh, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna bow out for for this so uh until next time as always take care of yourselves and each other and keep it strange <laughs>